bad takes on Ukraine, the legacy media continue to lie about the Freedom Convoy, and the anti-social Yob guy thinks that conservatives are extreme. It's Fake News Friday, I'm Kenneth Malcolm, and this is The Kenneth Malcolm Show. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. So we haven't really had a chance to get into the situation in Ukraine yet on the show. Maybe we'll do that next week. It looks pretty scary over there. The situation is pretty tense with Russia and Putin invading Ukraine. Boots are on the ground. There's explosions. There's bombing. Lots and lots of scary scenes. Lots of uh, refugees fleeing. Lots of fighters getting ready to engage in a conventional warfare, which we haven't seen in quite some time. Now, we're not going to focus in on the serious part of Ukraine. We're going to focus in on what you kind of have come to expect, right? So over the past two years during COVID, we have seen every single journalist in the world basically become an expert in public health, in epidemiology, and in COVID. Well, today and in this week, what we saw is a lot of those experts on public health take off their uh, their their public health expert hat and put on their foreign affairs expert hat and and give us their sort of worst takes on Ukraine and and it is kind of amusing. So uh, joining me for Fake News Friday today is True North producer Harrison Faulkner. Harrison's a journalist here at True North. Harrison, uh, first of all, welcome to the show. Second of all, why don't you walk us through some of the worst tweets that we've seen so far on Ukraine? Yeah. So just as you said, Candice, we've got we've pulled some of these uh, pulled some of these foreign policy expert tweets. And they are too, as you expect, they are just absolutely ridiculous. So yeah, we're going to go through a couple of them. This first one comes from Cenk Uger, who's notorious for his bad takes. He's the uh, he's the head of the Young Turks, which is this left-wing uh, progressive YouTube news channel. Um, and, and he basically says that the right-wing doesn't love Putin just because he's an authoritarian, tyrannical leader. They love him because he's a white authoritarian leader. Race has become more important than even nationality. They've turned on democracy and now even America in favor of a white warlord. So, of course, as you can see, Candace, they are already preparing for this to be a racial uh, war and uh, has nothing to do with with uh, Ukraine and Russia. Really, it just comes down to skin color. Well, it's it's so it's so absurd, Harrison. Uh, first of all, uh, I follow a lot of Republicans, and most of them are condemning Putin pretty hard right now. Um, second, to Cenk Uger's position here, uh, does he realize that Ukrainians are also white? The whole idea that people are rallying behind Putin because he's white sort of ignores the broader picture here that this is a European war where both sides happen to have the same skin color. Anyway, I'll give it back to you. Well, I mean, this is this is that's the that's the nature of these of these tweets we've pulled, um, and you can just see exactly where this is going to be heading. Um, Janelle Forsyth, who is a comm specialist for nonprofits and progressive causes, um, she writes. This isn't this isn't discussed much, but Putin very much benefits from white privilege. I just can't see a scenario in which a black or brown man running Russia will be allowed to invade Ukraine with no devastating consequences. White supremacy will destroy us. So one thing quickly, um, I agree with Janelle Forsyth that I can't really see a black or brown man running Russia as well. But also, uh, if you were to look at Africa, for example, where warlords run those countries all the time, there is constant fighting. Uh, and taking over of countries there all the time, uh, it's it's a little it's a little ridiculous, uh, and I think that you know this is again like I said this is just what should be expected from some of these from these progressives on Twitter. Well, not just that, Harrison, but it's like people who don't follow foreign affairs, people who have no idea what they're talking about when it comes to international relations. They're not observers of international conflict. Uh, but suddenly, when the news cycle switches to Ukraine, they're 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 the expert. Trust them, and they're going to have some really insightful takes, as we can see here. 
Well, and Candace, this, this, this next one is quite funny, and it leads to the point about how these public health experts who are now engaging in foreign policy, they haven't totally forgotten about public health. So this one is from Dana Houle, uh, who is a U.S. leftist activist, and she writes, A lot of people in Ukraine crowding together inside. Only 35% of Ukrainians have been vaccinated. Less than two have been boosted. So, again, the Ukrainians should be concerned about COVID. They should be concerned about their vaccination status. Not too much about what's happening in Ukraine. Um, just, in, just an unbelievable take. Yeah, for, forget about for, forget about the bombs crashing down. Forget about the gunfire. The real threat, the real concern for everyone is still COVID. Don't forget that. Yeah, maybe we should be sending them uh, N95 masks instead of rifles to uh, to really protect them. And then this last one, which was which was horribly ratioed uh, from Stephen King, a fiction author. You've probably heard of him. He wrote on February 22nd, just about a day before Putin decided to invade Ukraine, he wrote, Mr. Putin has made a serious miscalculation. He forgot he's no longer dealing with Mr. Trump. So immediately people jumped on this as a, just a, a one of the, probably one of the worst takes uh, of this entire situation, basically saying that, oh, right, if, if Trump was still the president, Ukraine would have already been gone, apparently. But let's just remember, under Donald Trump, Putin didn't invade Ukraine. Under Donald Trump, China didn't invade Taiwan. Uh, all of the all of the issues that we are seeing really popping off now under Biden weren't occurring. Um, he basically went in and destroyed ISIS immediately, and then from that point on, every other leader, authoritarian leader around the world, recognized that Donald Trump was serious. He would have stopped them. And they didn't do anything. So I'm not really sure where this where this uh, take is coming from. But um, I mean, this this is coming from a fictional author. Let's just remember that. Well, it, it, it's kind of just like Trump derangement. Like the, everything must have been worse if, if Trump was uh, in office. For forgetting the reality, right? The, the the truth of the matter is that Vladimir Putin invaded Georgia under George W. Bush when George W. Bush was president. He invaded Crimea in Ukraine when Barack Obama was president. He invaded nobody when Trump was president. So say what you will about Trump. Putin didn't invade another sovereign country under Trump. Uh, here we have Joe Biden, and we see uh, Putin invading Ukraine. So, 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 real life history and the facts are completely counter to a lot of this Trump derangement stuff. Um, no wonder the the tweet was ratioed, and for people who don't know, ratio just means that a whole bunch more people comment uh, and 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 sort of tell you that you're wrong uh, versus very few people who like your tweet and 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 share it with your audience. So yes, uh, let's let's stick to your fiction writing, um, Mr. King. Well, uh, aside from uh, aside from Ukraine and and all the consternation and and the hot takes over there, uh, the media is still doing their best to try to demonize the Freedom Convoy, continuing to do Justin Trudeau's dirty work. Look, Harrison, I think that Justin. Trudeau benefited greatly from the quick change in the news cycle this week, right? So he had the Emergency Act, he used it, he quickly got rid of it without really a lot of explanation, without really being held to account in the way that you would expect a Canadian Democratic leader to be held to account. Uh, a few hours after he announced that the Emergency Act was over, we got news that Putin was going ahead and invading Ukraine. We saw bombs, we saw uh, troops, we saw we saw the, the the surge. And so because of that, everybody focused, everyone's focus immediately shifted to Ukraine. And again, Trudeau benefited from that because it helps him avoid the scrutiny of using uh, the, the, the worst power grab in Canadian history. And so I, I hope that that there will, uh, that the conservative um, opposition, that courts, that judges, that lawyers will continue to uh, expose Trudeau, to unearth the uh, information, to, to help 
help the people whose lives have been destroyed from having their bank accounts frozen. I, ho I hope there's accountability. I hope that we continue to get to the bottom of that. Uh, Tr Trudeau has benefited. Um, however, the media continue to do what the media does, which is lie and spread propaganda in favor of Justin Trudeau, trying to continue to smear the convoy, um, even though um, my guess is that most people who read the legacy media already have a negative view of the convoy. Regardless, they're continuing to do that dirty work. So there's a story over in Global and a, a couple interesting points that I want to make about this, this story, uh, Harrison. So the headline says, as Freedom Convoy leaves Ottawa, residents continue to look over their shoulders. So this idea that that the people in Ottawa are so forever triggered um, from having a group of working class people protest in their city for three weeks uh, that they're going to have like PTSD um, f forever because of this. And, and, and the idea that they're going to have to look over their shoulders just in case there's a trucker or a working class person in their in their community. Uh, so I'll read a little bit from this because it's quite amusing. It says, the blaring of truck horns, the sound of parties going into the wee hours of the night, a city under occupation, was Jamie Sadgrove's reality for three weeks. Let me just make a quick point. Um, I lived in Ottawa. It's a sleepy little town. Um, normal cities in the world, I've also lived in downtown Toronto, spent time in some of the biggest cities in the world. Normal big cities have a bustling feel to them, right? The idea of uh, horns honking in the middle of the night, people partying the wee hours. That's just sort of normal city life for most people. For, for people in Ottawa, it was like unbelievably jarring to the point where they refer to the people who are in their city as occupiers. And it was an occupation, a foreign occupation, sort of like what we're seeing in Kiev right now. It's, it's just so silly uh, to take a step back and, and to view it under this lens. But I'll continue reading. It says... But as the so-called Freedom Convoy, Freedom Convoy in scare quotes, I've seen this in another global piece, uh, Harrison, I think this must be their editorial position that every time they call, they refer to the freedom protest, they call it the so-called Freedom Convoy, Freedom Convoy in scare quotes, so that you don't actually believe that they are fighting for freedom. Um, that's just the scare quotes that they put in. So anyway, the Freedom Convoy vanished from downtown. Sadgrove is starting to see the spirit of a resilient city trickle back into the streets. Everyone seems to be in a better mood. I picked up on that in the streets as well. People smiling at each other, saying hi more often than I think they did before the convoy, and more people are wearing their masks outside now too. Hooray, congratulations. All those horrible working class people are gone, and we're back to our sensible bureaucrat government town where we're so cautious that we even wear masks outside even though it's completely unnecessary. Um, so, so congratulations, Ottawa. You're back to um, being a completely uptight, um, ridiculous uh, city that where people wear masks outside. Uh, an another another person that they interviewed for this story, an uh, individual named Amanda Knox, who lives in Canada, Ontario. Okay, for folks not, not familiar with Ottawa, Canada is not in Ottawa. Canada is a suburb that is 45 minutes away from downtown Ottawa, 45 minutes away from where the convoy was. So keep that in mind as we read this account from Miss Knox here. She says, Monday was one of the few normal days they've had all year. Knox said that she would sleep a little better knowing the convoy had departed from the downtown core 45 minutes away, adding that all members of her family felt a little more at ease. It's good to have that quiet return to the city, said Knox from her quiet suburb 45 minutes away from Ottawa. So I, I guess they're scraping the bottom of the barrel to put together this article, uh, Harrison, where they couldn't find anyone in Ottawa to comment on it. So they went to someone who lived in a suburb 45 minutes away. You spent a bit of time in Ottawa during the convoy. Uh, how do you, how do you uh, read a piece like this? Well, two things. So uh, on Amanda Knox's account of the, of the, of the noise, <clears throat> I stayed in two different hotels on the second weekend when the trucks were still there. The police hadn't cracked down violently on the protesters. So everything was basically the way it was the first weekend. The first hotel I stayed at was quite close to downtown. So I could hear some of the horns 
only when I woke up because they stopped they stopped blaring their horns at night. But the second hotel I stayed at was 10 minutes away from downtown, but it was still in Ottawa. Uh, I didn't hear anything, actually. I couldn't hear the downtown. I couldn't hear um, the trucks. So uh, I, it's pretty hard to believe that in Canada, it was, Canada was reverberating with the sound of truck horns. I, I doubt that. Uh, but on, the, on the, first, uh, the first account from Jamie Sadgrove, so he says that people are now smiling and, and waving at each other and saying hi. When I was there, I had never been a part of a group where more people were smiling, more people were happy to be there, and more people were waving, hugging, talking to people. It was actually, it was actually um, one of the most refreshing things to be a part of, to see that, that kind of sense of community come together. I live in downtown Toronto. It is one of the most dull cities around. Everyone is miserable. Everyone is, has their head in their phone. No one is saying anything to anybody. Um, so I, 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 just, I just find it to be ridiculous, obviously, that they're, they're, going, at such, they're going to such great lengths to spin this. Um, but again, it's global news. So that's it's such a good point, Harrison. I, I heard that from so many people who were there. I unfortunately didn't make it down into Ottawa for these convoys, but I was following it very closely. And I, I was watching a lot of reporters, including our own, who were down there. And one of the things that so many people commented on was the festival, carnival-like atmosphere and how friendly everyone was. Even even people who weren't necessarily in support at all. I remember reading a, a, a blog by Matt Gurney, who was sort of saying that these people weren't, weren't his people and didn't like them. But he still said that one of the things that was so notable to him was the eye contact and how people were smiling and friendly and it was like unlike anything he had he had seen before and to me that's sort of like the difference between a small town and a city when you're in a city everyone keeps their head down they keep to themselves uh whereas when you're in a small town people are friendly people say hi to each other walking down the street even if you don't know each other and that's just one of those major cultural divides and it's like it's like when all of these working class people came to Ottawa, they brought a little bit of their small town community to the city and it was it was nice. I'm sure it was refreshing. Um, so interesting uh, point that you picked up on there. Well, that, that wasn't the only example of the media just really obsessing over the convoy and trying to paint it in the worst possible light. Uh, one of the things that I noticed throughout the convoy was that the media tried to really fixate on a small handful of people in the convoy. So basically what they did was they sifted through the convoy. They found the most egregious people possible. They picked out the, the biggest lunatics, the craziest people who were making the conspiracy theories, who were, who were talking about how they wanted to overthrow the government, or who were making legitimately racist comments. And then they would hold these people up. The legacy media would hold these people up as if they were somehow the leaders of the convoy or that their views represented everybody at the convoy, treating the convoy like a political party. The thing that the media fundamentally misunderstand or perhaps they deliberately misinterpret because it makes the truckers look worse is that the truckers are not a political party. It never was, right? It was a completely organic grassroots movement. There was word that a couple of truckers were going to do a slow roll from Vancouver. All of a sudden there was convoys all over the country and they were putting together a sort of loosely organized, not a political organization, uh, a protest movement, a, a group of people who were all coming together because they shared one view, which is that the government had overstepped, that, they, that their powers were being abused. They wanted their lives back, right? And so, 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 for, so, despite the, the true nature of the protest, which was that it was totally decentralized and organic, the media treated it like it was a top-down organized event where there was like a couple of uh, brain trusts that were that were planning the whole thing. 
And so uh, among that structure that the media invented, they found an individual called Pat King. Now, I, I, I pointed this out on Twitter. I'll make the point again. I follow a lot of people in the convoy. I, I follow it very closely. I follow a lot of conservatives. I have a lot of truckers in my feed constantly, and I'm reading what they're saying, and I'm hearing what they're, how they're communicating, and I'm watching them. And I never heard anybody talk about this individual, Pat King. I didn't hear anybody saying, uh, go check out his videos. Let's show him support. I, he I heard a lot of people talking about BJ Dichter. I heard a lot of people talking about Tamara Litch. I heard people talking about uh, lots lots of other people who were who were involved i didn't hear anyone talk about pat king other than a small handful of journalists in the parliamentary press gallery people in the legacy media who held him up and called him a leader they called him a leader and they pretended that his views represented the views of everyone else i will just say i find pat king to be repulsive i find his views to be awful he seems to be um, a despicable racist person he's uh, i've seen clips of him making egregious statements i completely disagree with everything he's saying and i believe that people in the convoy felt the same way that as soon as they got to know this guy they said you need to stay away from us because you're poisonous and we don't agree with you go away um, regardless the media loved to hold him up and call him a leader so we saw that again this week because he apparently was arrested and he was in court. Uh, worth noting that the lawyers that were representing a bunch of the other trucker convoy leaders refused to represent this guy because he's not part of their group at all. So, so, so this guy's on his own in court. Here's David Aiken of Global News saying... It's been a long eight hours for Pat King in court. He's not able to speak. He's the center of attention, but he's not not in the way he's accustomed to. As lawyers argue his fate, he slumped forward, elbows on knees, head in his hands. Like, as if, like, people care. Like, I, I don't understand. Like, they think he's his public figure when everyone in the trucker convoy has tried to distance himself from him. Uh, likewise, the CBC had a story calling him the convoy leader. So it says convoy leader Pat King to hear bail decision Friday as woman puts up 50K in support. And they quote, of course, the Canadian anti-hate network, which should be called the anti-hate hoax network because they uh, are, have become infamous for pushing hate hoaxes. Uh, regardless, it says we've turned... Uh, we've tuned in for Pat King's bail hearing this morning, so you don't have to, and we'll be providing updates accordingly. Harrison, uh, what's your take on this individual, Pat King, and why do you think the media are so obsessed with him? Well, I think it's I think it's it's important to note, Candace, that as you said, this was a decentralized operation, and there were a couple of different groups with some followings that were kind of taking the lead on the organizing of the truck movement itself. One of those groups had listed Pat King amongst a list of, of many other people who had some had a truck and had some uh, had some responsibility for per province. So the media immediately picked that up and they, they listed him as a as a Alberta captain. So the media picked that up and said that he was the he was the leader of this entire operation, knowing that that wasn't the case. Now I had the opportunity to join a press conference held by the organizers, including Tamara Litch, Ben Dichter, um, some of the other organizers, including Keith Wilson, their lawyer, in that press conference, they explicitly stated that Pat King was not an organizer of the event. He was not a part of their official, uh, the official organization that had that that were the leaders of this group. But that didn't matter for the media because it was an easy target for them. He was an easy figure to latch onto because he had these he had these posts that he put put up on social media um, that live on, of course. And the media were able to take those and use it to smear the entire group. So um, I think it's important to note that even when the organizers of the event distance themselves clearly from this individual, that doesn't matter to the media. They're not going to take that as, as any legitimate uh, word. They're just going to believe what they want to believe and push what they want to push. So um, it's disappointing that this individual has, um, has tarnished this group. 
And that was clear that the organizers of this event knew that was going to happen, knew this person was going to be a, uh, a target for the media, and they tried their best, but it, they, they weren't able to uh, defeat the narrative being peddled by the legacy media on this one. Well, they just insist on the fact that this guy's leader, even though everyone says obviously he's not. I, th I think it's a good lesson for conservatives, however, because look, th there are people out there who have horrible views, who are despicable racists, and it's important to police your own and to make sure that these people aren't able to latch onto your movement, aren't able to ride your coattails in order to promote their own you know, despicable worldview. And it it's so important to loudly and clearly um, condemn people like that who wave confusion Confederate flags and who who talk about race um, in that way that 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 those people are just simply not welcome and if you start talking about that stuff you're going to get removed and and basically just excommunicated uh, by the community. I like to see conservatives do that more strongly and of course when it comes to the media they're just the worst of the worst actors such bad faith pretending again that somehow this this individual speaks for everyone is just so, so, so such bad faith and exactly what we've come to expect from the legacy media harrison well there's one more story i want to pick up on this came out last friday and we didn't cover it on fake news friday but look and andrew coin who is a columnist over at the globe and mail he's sort of uh he, he's an individual who goes on cbc and talks he's, he's sort of the um quintessential Canadian Laurentian elite. Um, actually, he, he became infamous during this um, protest because he referred to the truckers as a group of anti-social yobs. I'll, let's play that clip. We haven't played that clip on the show before. So this is Andrew Gwynn, just so you get an idea who we're going to be talking about next here. In many cases, they're not even truckers at all. Uh, they're basically a bunch of, of you know, anti-social yobs with delusions of grandeur, uh, a persecution complex and too much time on their hands. So a group of antisocial yobs with delusions of grandeur and a persecution complex. That, that's what he thinks about working class Canadians. Well, on the day that Justin Trudeau enacted uh, the Emergency Act, the day that he um, he unleashed it and the police were storming Ottawa and militarized the city and were moving in to remove the peaceful unarmed protest, Andrew Coyne, who's a political affairs columnist, you know, you'd think at, at a moment like that, you know, watching the police move in on a group of peaceful protesters watching the prime minister use an unprecedented power grab in the Emergencies Act, never been used before, hearing news of bank accounts being frozen, watching police brutality. You would think at that moment, a political affairs columnist would choose to write a column on the actor that's leading this whole thing, the person who's causing the chaos, which was Justin Trudeau, uh, talking about why he enacted the Emergency Act, talking about uh, you know the, the his position as leader of the party, uh, the Liberal Party leading the country, how he mishandled it. You know, there's so many things that you would expect a political affairs column, columnist to focus in on when it comes to the person leading the action. Instead, no, Andrew, Andrew Coyne uh, shifted his focus and decided to write a column demonizing conservatives. So he wrote a column that came out on February 18th saying, how did conservatives become so attracted to extremism? So I'm going to read a little bit here. Uh, Harrison, I'll let you react. So he writes this, conservatives who are once considered part of the mainstream, so first of all, he's saying the conservatives aren't mainstream anymore. Okay, buddy. Uh, conservatives who were once part of the mainstream are spiraling down the same arc traced by Mr. Maxime Bernier, leader of the PPC party and others. For three weeks with the country's capital held hostage, <laughs> the party's former leader, Andrew Scheer, its interim leader, Candace Bergen, and its probable future leader, Pierre Polyev, have all openly sided with the hostage takers. Their rhetoric indistinguishable from Maxime Bernier. <laughs> okay, what do you think about that, Harrison? Well, there's, there's quite a lot to get into. I mean, the hostage takers, as Andrew Coyne calls them, who are armed with bouncy castles and hot tubs and, uh, and food, 
um, really must have scared Andrew quite a lot. Now, here's the thing that I here's the thing that I just that I really don't understand. The the conservatives, the mainstream conservatives, who he calls uh, not mainstream, like Pierre Polyev uh, and Andrew Scheer and Candace Bergen, all they were doing was taking a very measured defense of Canadians' peaceful right to protest because they have the ability to see past the politics. They know full well that once the Emergencies Act has been invoked on a peaceful protest like this, there's very little stopping it from being invoked on other people's right to protest. And unlike Andrew Coyne, these conservative leaders were taking a very measured response. They weren't, they weren't freaking out. They weren't, uh, you know, writing crazy posts on Twitter. All they were doing was basically saying, we defend the right for truckers to have their right to protest as we do for everyone else in this country to do that. Um, so I just think it's, it's, it's quite, it's quite dangerous to see the shift happening where even the ability for mainstream politicians to defend the rights of working class people, uh, defend their right to protest, that is seen as extreme. Uh, that's, a, that's a bad direction we're heading in if that's where the so-called elite are, are now siding. Well, it's just like, it, you know, the, the perspective of a progressive who doesn't think that the conservative party should exist, doesn't think that conservatives should have a political platform and thinks that the political uh, conservative party should basically be a party of like red Tories who have sensible progressive values and maybe care a little bit more about balanced budgets or something like that. That, that. That's sort of where he's coming from. And this idea that like, how dare these conservative politicians, um, you know, want to listen to the truckers like like for, I, I was watching the conservatives. I think that they were very measured. I don't think that they defended the truckers in as mu as much as I would have liked to see them do. I don't think that they that they that they truly represented them. However, what they were saying was very moderate, very moderate, saying these people have a right to protest. Uh, we should hear them out. And that's basically it. they condemned illegal blockades and they sided with law and order. Um, you know, compare that to Maxime Bernier, who was much more, um, you know, colorful in his language, much more likely to, uh, you know, use hyperbole in describing what Justin Trudeau was doing. I didn't see any of that from those conservative politicians. So Andrew Coyne is just wrong on the facts on that one. Let's continue here. Oh, because he he, he takes a shot at journalists like you and I, Harrison, here at True North. So uh, interesting. Now let's let's talk about what Andrew Coyne thinks about the media. So he says... Right-wing opinion, formerly fragmented, now presents itself of something of a continuum, running all the way from Rebel News through True North to the Sun newspaper chain and, alas, the National Post. People you'd have thought would be able to spot a grift a mile away instead have been enthralled by it, as if the half-witted bros in the convoy really were fighting for freedom and not providing cover for their anarcho-racist leaders. So Andrew Coyne falls into the same trap as David Akin and other journalists, pretending that this was, again, a top-down uh, le uh, the top-down movement uh, where the leaders of the convoy, they weren't actually working-class people fighting for their freedom, Harrison. They were actually anarcho-racists who were, what, trying to overthrow the government, I guess. And apparently um, the whole thing was a grift from day one and people like you and I should have been smart enough uh, to see through what he calls the half-witted bros in the convoy, as if calling them antisocial yobs wasn't bad enough. Now he's calling them half-witted bros. So again, this is Andrew Coyne, who is a very privileged elite who th sees himself as being very, very insightful and intelligent, um, looking down his nose and scoffing at the intelligence of the truckers. That's 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 great. That's very uh, that, that that's very good for class relations in Canada. And and he's just bitter about the idea that there's this sort of new continuum of right wing conservative media. So he 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 much prefers that the rebel be like isolated and far far away, um, removed from the conservative party. Whereas now he sees this continuum. I, I'm flattered by this that he says, look, there's the rebel 
Then there's True North. You know, the, the Rebels is does its own thing, and, and it's not for everyone. It's its own, it's its own flavor. Uh, here at True North, we're, we're a little different. Uh, we have our own flavor. Um, and then same with over to the uh, Sun newspapers and Post Media. You know, those two are kind of blurring together. Um, yeah, I, I, th- I think that's fair to say that there's sort of different types of conservative news outlets. We all have our own flavor, and we're all influenced, again, by our own worldview and our own editorial position. Post Media takes money from the Trudeau government. We do not. And and so, he, you know, what he's really angry about, Harrison, is something that I'm really proud of, the fact that independent media like the Rebel, uh, Ezra Levant, head of the Rebel, posted a couple of days ago that his channel has had over 100 million views in the last month. So many people are going to Rebel. They've had a lot of uh, journalists and reporters on the ground filming and, and covering things that legacy media were just unable to cover. Uh, here at True North, we've had similarly very, very good numbers, not quite that high, but still I'd wager that more people are reading True North than, than a lot of those post-media newspapers. And it's great that people are getting their news from other sources and that if you are a conservative, you don't have to be stuck with the National Post, which again is a big corporation that takes money from the Trudeau government and isn't always necessarily going to take the side of conservatism, especially when it's more of a populist or a Western Canadian um, movement. And so the thing that Andrew Coyne is most upset about, um, it to, to me, is, is a great sign um, for the conservative movement that we have more outlets, more voices, um, more opinions being expressed. What's, what's your take on that? Well, I think one thing to note is that at True North, we don't call Canadians uh, half-witted bros and anti-social yobs. Most, Cana- most of those Canadians, we don't call Canadians that read our work that, and we don't call Canadians that don't read our work that. We actually take, we have, we have a, a sense of respect for Canadians exercising their rights um, to protest. And clearly, this is, this is really upsetting Andrew Coyne. Um, and no wonder, I mean, luckily, I, at my role, I have the ability to see the, the data, the back end, the numbers on our site. And it's no surprise that our growth is catching the attention of these people who work for sinking ship legacy media outlets. It is a threat to their, to their dominant uh, control over the media. We are on the map now. Um, we have seen incredible growth since this convoy began, and it's because... Canadians are desperate for real coverage that isn't going to demonize them at every turn. Uh, and I think that that's just, that's just the way this is all heading. Um, Globe and Mail, the National Post, um, and some of these post-media newspapers aren't appealing to Canadians because they've taken this really nasty position on, on everyday Canadians who just want to have their right to protest, have their voice heard, and do it in a, in frankly, a fun way with bouncy castles and hot tubs. These are not half-witted uh, anti-social yobs. And Andrew Coyne, if you've looked at any of his coverage, every time he does a CBC hit, he's doing it from his house. So clearly he's cooped up in his house, not talking to any of these people who he, who he seems to think are, are half-wits, um, and, 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 is just, and is just firing shots from his basement at these Canadians. It is, uh, it's just disappointing to see, but um, clearly this, this whole convoy has really, really broken Andrew Coyne's spirit. Totally. I want to read one more part of it because it's, it's so interesting. So uh, yeah, again, you have this elitist Laurentian elite guy sitting from his home. He, he appears in the Globe and Mail and on the CBC and he's 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 raging against what he calls a phony class war. So he says, there's also a whiff of a class war in the air, a phony class war, but there you are. Conservative commentators have persuaded themselves or at any rate would like to persuade others of the blockade participants because some of them brought trucks are genuine representatives of truckers as a group or better yet, the working class. It's not remotely true. 90% of the working class are 
are fully vaccinated at work, but it fits the populist conservative ambition of hiving off working class voters from the left, whom they accuse of being more concerned with racial and sexual identity politics than traditional working class issues. A lot to unpack there. First of all, that the idea that if you're fully vaccinated, that you're not part of the trucker convoy is a lie. It's, it's wrong. It's objectively wrong. If you spent any time, as you did, Harrison, going and interviewing these truckers, or as I did, watching a lot, a lot of interviews, coming through a lot of footage, you will learn that a lot of the truckers were in fact fully vaccinated. The reason that they were there is because they want their freedoms back. They don't want to live in a two-tiered society. They don't like the mandates. They don't like the idea that people are being fired from their jobs. It was a point of principle, okay? So, so the idea that just because someone is vaccinated, therefore they can't be part of the convoy and the movement is just false. It's false. It's wrong. If he paid attention to what people are actually saying, he would understand that. And I understand as well, look, I'm fully vaccinated and I vehemently oppose vaccine mandates. I think it is terrible for society and bad for the future of our country. So, so it's not a contradiction. And just by simply saying that someone's vaccinated, therefore they're not part of this group, is wrong on the surface. The broader point that he's making here that it's a phony class war. Look, the idea that a bunch of people who work in the real world, who don't have the luxury to sit on Zoom all day, to work from their home, to be you know hived off from society because they can live in this virtual world, the people who actually have to get up every morning, get dressed, go out and and you know face the world, COVID or not, regardless of the weather, these are the people who have had enough. It very, very much is a class distinction. And, and it is so obvious that it's not just conservative commentators who are making this point. I read a piece about it in the New York Times yesterday, the exact same thing. So many people are observing that this is a class distinction. In fact, Andrew Quinn wrote this piece last week. Uh, later in the week, he was on CBC sort of admitting that it actually was a class distinction. So maybe he's come around on this point. But here, just the points that he's making are so wrong, uh, so, so, so out of touch. And to me, again, just shows this sort of like bitter angriness that he has that he's sort of losing he's losing his grip he's losing his grip um of power because people are no longer looking to him as sort of the the intellectual thought leader for for conservatives that's not who he is anymore and he's so out of touch with the grassroots base of the conservative party that the conservatives uh, they, they don't look to him they don't care what he has to say he's he's in a position of power but he's losing that power and he's angry that that power is slipping away yeah, the guy who says that this isn't a class war is the same guy calling working class Canadians half wits and anti-social yobs. I mean, how much, how much more, how much clearer can it get? The the person from the CBC and Globe and Mail basically attacking all of these people um, and looking down on them is saying, "Oh, this is not a class war. This is not a class divide." Well, clearly it is. Um, and, and Andrew wouldn't know that because he hasn't spent any time talking with any of these people. I wonder if, he, if he's even talked to a trucker in uh, maybe in his whole life because this kind of opinion is from the same kind of person that wouldn't be, wouldn't even know a trucker if, uh, if, they, walked, if they walked past him on the street. Oh, that's such a good point. And, and to the earlier point that somehow um, this is a continuum from Rebel to True North to Sun Papers all the way to National Post. Uh, one of the people, one of the journalists who has been the strongest uh, proponent and advocate for the working class and the truckers has been Rex Murphy, who writes for the National Post. He's probably the most prominent writer for the National Post. And it's because he grew up in a working class environment and he still goes out of his way to try to interact with 
the working class and people like truckers. So there's there's quite a distinction that you can see between um, a person who loves their country and cares about getting to know them and wants to hear from different people from different classes, Rex Murphy, and someone who's very isolated, very insular, uh, very snobby, and sort of telling everybody else what to think. And that is Andrew Coyne. Well, it's no surprise, Harrison, that uh, this came out. Polls show that trust in the media and the government are at an all-time low. So in 2022 so far, only 35% of Canadians say they trusted traditional media. It's down from 38% last year. My guess is that it has plummeted even more over the past weeks, seeing the way that the media has turned into essentially propagandists for the Trudeau government, repeating their lies that this was an occupation, that these uh, protesters are extremists and Nazis and racists. And it's, to so many people, it's, it's, it's just clear as day what the media is doing and how out of touch and untrustworthy they are. Well, Harrison, thank you so much for joining Fake News Friday. It's always fun to have you on the show. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to be on, Candace. Thank you. All right. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Candace Malcolm, and this is The Candace Malcolm Show.